Hi, I'm Val Hart in San Antonio, Texas, founder of Val Hart and Friends at ValHart.com. Welcome to The Real Dr. Doolittle Show, the show for animals and the people who love them. I've been called a real-life Dr. Doolittle many times in my career as an expert animal communicator, behaviorist, pet psychic, and master healer. My mission and passion is to improve the lives of animals the world over by helping humans learn how to speak their language, how to understand their viewpoints, and heal. After all, our love of animals helps us be better humans, and the more balanced and healthy we are, the more balanced and healthy they can be, too. Be sure and look for my CDs on iTunes, and to find out more about my work and to receive your free Quick Start Animal Talk course, just go to my website at valhart.com. While you're there for a limited time, you can also apply for a complimentary Happy Animal Assessment Session. And if you want to learn how to be your own Dr. Doolittle, check out the world's first complete animal communication made easy system available now on my website at valhart.com. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Val Hart, the real Dr. Doolittle, and today I'm talking with Dr. Sid Gustafson. Dr. Sid is a practicing veterinarian and a university educator as well as an animal welfare advocate. He teaches equine behavior at the University of Guelph for the Equine Guelph Open Learning Program, an online education program that reaches out to horse folk worldwide. He's taught domestication science, equine behavior, and the evolution and domestication of the wolf at Montana State University and the University of Montana Western, where he was the Equine Studies Program Coordinator. Dr. Sid also writes for the New York Times regarding the health and welfare of racehorses. He represents the health and welfare of racehorses for the California Horse Racing Board as an official veterinarian at various meets in California. Dr. Gustafson recently testified before the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission supporting the ban of race day medication to improve the health, welfare, and the safety of racing thoroughbreds. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sid. Why, thank you, Val. I'm very excited to have you here. I, I know you do a lot of work with equine and canine behavior and socialization and the domestication process. And and what we wanted to talk to you about is a lot of that and also how how do we develop willing partnerships with horses and dogs. And I know cats might be included, too. So if we have cat listeners, <laughs> don't go away. This should be also fun for you. So um, what do you think people need to know about that? Well, I think um, the important thing is to try to um, see the world from their pet's perspective, be it a cat, dog, or horse. And um, through the domestication process, um, I've found that animals are willing to please those people who know how to please the animals, how to enrich and fulfill their lives. So content animals um, are usually willing partners and willing learners, um, but it's sometimes not easy to fulfill uh, and enrich a pet's life. So um, I think it needs to start with the dog, horse, or cat growing up to understand what species it is. So I like dogs, puppies, to stay with their litter perhaps longer than traditional. Um, I don't like them isolated at six weeks of age from their species um, Mm. if they are taken from the litter for that 
at that age. Um, mm-hmm. I prefer that they have frequent contact with other puppies and other dogs um, as they mm-hmm. grow up. Mm-hmm. seems a lot of the behavioral issues in dogs and horses um, were a result of uh, lack of socialization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm mm-hmm. speaking with their other species, um, with their species. As well, the socialization process uh, needs to be extensive with people as well. So, so that's how, where I usually okay. start. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, how long do you think uh, babies should stay with their mom? 12, 13 weeks would be nice. Four or five months uh, can be appropriate. Um, okay. So it seems, it, and it depends on the environment um, the litter or the foal is in. We like natural environments for horses. Ideally, they'd be on green grass with a mm-hmm. herd of broodmares and other foals. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it was a litter of puppies, um, they'd grow up in a household, you know, with plenty of space to where they can move about and socialize. Um, so that's what we like to see, three, okay. four months with the dogs, kittens as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. I know that a lot, you know, in my work, I'm a problem-solving specialist. So, I'm, you know, I know you and I both, we kind of get the animals that are did not get the right upbringing, you know, the ones that are having problems, the ones that didn't get socialized properly, the, you know, and that that's really set up some life lifelong difficulties and challenges in their ability to be happy and good and fulfilled in the world, you know, in their life. Um, and I know, I remember um, with foals, uh, there was a, such a trend of taking foals from the mom and imprinting them and uh, at very early ages, and we were seeing all kinds of problems from that. You know, the, So I really can relate to what you're saying here. I think we take our babies way too early from, you know, from their family and from other animals of, of their kind and, of, and other kinds too because they need to know how to get along with everybody, right? Correct. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes, the, um, the best teacher of the foal is the mare. Mm-hmm. So we, we like the mare to teach the foal how to be a horse. Um, and then as the foal becomes a horse, people through the uh, domestication process are apt to know how to train a horse and the horse then is apt to willingly please the trainer. So, but first the um, foal has to grow up to be a horse, and, and we we like the mare to, to to play that role, the mare and the herd. Yeah, as people, it, it's hard for us to teach a foal how to be a horse. <laughs> Most We're of us don't particularly know. We're not very qualified for the job, are we? <laughs> That's a really good point. Uh, so, um so what is required to get a horse or a dog or cat in the space to be a willing learner? What do you think is required? I think they have, their life has to be fulfilled and enriched. And okay. um, say the dog is 12 or 14 weeks and now we have it as a puppy. Um, I think lots of activities and exercise, um, I think it's the most overlooked thing. Um, it, of course, it has to be done with care. They're growing, and they have to be properly nourished. Um, mm-hmm. And the exercise has to be within the parameters of what they're capable of and what they've become acclimated to. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of walks and activity together, I think that's where people need to start. Um, the idea that they can pen them up a large portion of the time and have successful willing partners um, 
is sometimes a, a goal that can't be achieved. So mm-hmm. initially, I think that people have to get out with their pet or their horse. Um, cats is probably a little bit of a different issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and exercise frequently. So that's where I like pets to be most enriched in horses is with lots of locomotion and movement. And I like it to be engaged um, with the guardian of the pet, the dog mm-hmm. to be engaged. Mm-hmm. Okay, engaged like in in playing. In, tell me more. Well, um, some people tell me, well, yes, we turn him out in the backyard uh, one hour or twice a day. Um, that doesn't count. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it really doesn't, does it? The person has to get out there and, and leash or not. Um, we like dogs on leashes. We like them to be trained to uh, run an exercise off leash as well, uh, mm-hmm. and we consider that a form of enrichment. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's what I mean is they have to be with the person. That's what the dog wants. Um, uh, that's usually what the person wants or what we hope the person wants. Mm-hmm. So activities together. Uh, indeed, um, walking, um, playing, um and then that, with that, we then ease into training. Um, and we like uh, a lot of positive reinforcement, a lot of ignoring of things that, that we didn't hope to happen, and rewarding of things that, that um, we expect the pet to do and the pet does. So mm-hmm. each time the pet comes when called, we have to really significantly reward the pet and pet the pet and give it not a little pat on the head but a one- or two-minute massage. Mm-hmm. So they really have to understand um, the reward for coming to us and that seems to be the biggest goal people have with their new puppy mm-hmm. is to have it come, have he or she uh, come when called. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Is that also true then for uh, horses? Yes. We ha- they have to make uh, being caught up. We have to make uh, being caught up a, a good deal for the horse as well as coming when called a good deal for the dog. And you know these things, of course. Okay. Um, once these things are established, um, we have to be careful not to poison the cue. To say um, we have our dog coming and we're rewarding her every time she comes and she comes willingly. And then uh, at some point, she be- she's a puppy and she wanders out into a place where perhaps it's dangerous or out on the street. And we call her and she comes. Um, that's not the appropriate time to punish her because that will poison the cue to come when called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the dog, again, has to be rewarded for coming, even though it had misbehaved perhaps in the person's view or put itself in danger, uh, went beyond the boundaries that were outlined. Um, later then, the dog perhaps then has to be carried to the street and the person has to try to make clear um, perhaps you know, and not forcefully or coercively, but clearly that the road is a dangerous place and, mm-hmm. and then move on. Right, right. That's that's something I do for a lot of my clients um, is, you know, I'm a communic- I'm animal communicator, so uh, there are things we can do to tell our animals um, the dangers and the consequences and what can happen pretty dramatically when we're just talking to them, like you would your child. You know, if you had your child there and you're saying the reason why we don't want to cross the road without looking both ways and being sure it's safe first is because you could in fact get run over or killed or you know we can show them stories or something images of people getting hit by cars and and the child gets it and it's the same way really with our animals too once they understand the consequence which 
from their viewpoint, how would they have known that? You know, they hadn't ever experienced or seen it themselves personally, and maybe another animal didn't tell them about it. So um, that's something that's really important to share. So I love that you brought up the point of the po- uh, poison cues also. That's, you know, I'm always reminded of um, the child that, you know, the dad is going to punish him and tells them to go bring the belt. <laughs> it's like, so, you know, it's like, ah, uh, yeah, it, it's not a good thing. So uh, it's almost kind of like that. It's like you, you, you don't, you, if you're going to have a, a happy cue for your animal, you can't contaminate it by making it also a bad thing, you know, where they get punished or, or corrected. Uh, and not not a good thing. So uh, I know with my dog, uh, when I got him, we did a 100-day social socialization challenge, and that was that every day he got introduced uh, to something new and different, you know, that, um, uh, that he had not ever encountered before. And I think that's a wonderful thing to do. I don't know if it's the same kind of thing with horses or not, um, but I would think that it might be. And well, all horses are neophobic, and dogs are neophobic as well. And so uh, with horses in particular, um, anything they're not familiar with, it has to be demonstrated that it's safe and secure. Mm-hmm. So um, any new thing um, has to be introduced to the horse. The horse has to um, accept through the kinetic empathy and energy from the person, say, leading the horse, as you're talking about speaking mm-hmm. to the animal with gestures. Mm-hmm. Um, that the the new thing is safe. Um, an example is like the first time horses see pigs, um, they really get upset. So if pigs are going to be part of a horse's life, perhaps mm-hmm. at the county fair, um, mm-hmm. it's wise to first um, introduce pigs to horses. And once um, the horse is introduced to new things, and they can be introduced to extremely scary things, stadiums full of people, Mm-hmm. And once they're um, used to it and habituated to it, they can be fine with it. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, a lot of horses um, don't get appropriately habituated or desensitized no. to yeah. arenas and things that they're expected to be um, calm and collected in. So it's uh, one of the huge objectives of horse training is like you do with the dogs, is to try to introduce them to all the things that they may be exposed to on down the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, one of the first jobs I had, I think I was 12, uh, was to train uh, a pony, a five-year-old pony that was <laughs> very spoiled. Her name was Pearl. Um, and one of the things I was doing with her was introducing her to all kinds of stuff, umbrellas, you know, strange-looking things, bicycles, you name it, you know, to to get her comfortable and to trust me that, you know, whatever I introduced her to, she would be okay with. It would be safe. So that's a really good point. I love you. Brought th- uh, thank you for bringing that out. Um, do you think it's the same with cats? Well, um, cats um, seem to be a little... Um, I don't know that they're more distantly connected, but um, they're um, less likely to, um, you know, follow our wishes unless we're <laughs> extremely uh, deft and use a lot of diplomacy and finesse. So mm, good point. they sort of somehow have us on a string, but 
You know, uh, certain people are cat people. I think dog and horse people are similar. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's like a certain brand of people that, that are good with mules. And so I've seen some amazingly well-trained cats that mm-hmm. are trained up perhaps not as well as certain dogs we know about, but, mm-hmm. you know, that, that do amazing things um, willingly. You know, they're yeah. willing partners. I think those people uh, know the trick to making sure their cat life is fully enriched and fulfilled. Um, mm-hmm. So again, I think the cat has to have a certain amount of activity with the, the guardian each day, a significant mm-hmm. amount, an engaging amount. Mm-hmm. And they too can uh, become sort of actors in your little world. Other cats, of course, really stay quite separate from their people and really mm-hmm. don't follow any commands uh, It's more like, uh, you are my slave, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you will do as I wish, uh, when I wish it, uh, and uh, yeah, feed me. So I know that was the, I always said that my black and white uh, domestic cat, Peach, the one word of English that she knew was now. <laughs> it was always in relation to food, feed me. <laughs> now was, uh, was the key word there. Um, well, that's a good point. You know, um, we have a lot of obesity problems with pets, and mm, yeah. with cats in particular that you mentioned this, they come up and are saying now, and um, we like all people to understand that, yes, indeed, they may be asking for food, but we think a lot of the time they're not asking for food so much is some engaging activity. Yeah, they're bored. Yeah, yeah, they're bored, they're unfulfilled, they're unenriched. So the easiest thing for a person to do is feed the cat, and of course the cat's probably going to eat. It it, it sort of solved the problem. But uh, for cats that are having weight problems, then it's more than that, and they're asking you a half hour later again to be fed. Mm -hmm. What we think they're asking and we want people to appreciate is they're asking for some time together. They're Mm -hmm. asking for full-body massage, they're asking for some catnip play or fetch or Mm -hmm. um, feather feather activity or those little lights they use. So um, sometimes when pets are saying now, um, we need to appreciate actually what they're asking for. Certainly sometimes it's food, but often it's they want this life with you. And Mm -hmm. so we have to to step out of our life and into theirs. And these are the pets and cats and horses then that become the ones that are the willing partners that are happy to train up and learn for you. Yeah, I I love that. And so socialization and training and fulfilling their needs and giving them opportunities to have enriched, you know, life experiences, um, it definitely... It, it contributes to their behavioral health. I, I like how you phrase that. Um, let's talk about behavioral health and, and what can happen in the future if we don't uh, socialize properly. How, how would you know if the animal you have, and maybe you didn't raise them, you know, maybe you got them second or third or fifth hand, you know. Um, <clears throat> how would you know if they have a socialization problem? That's, You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Um, well, you and I can spot them right away. And and we know the origin of the problem, um, and I think we need to educate people that we have to step back to try to figure out how the dog got in this position. Um, usually they're fearful of most everything or some of them. These are some of the signs. They may have all or none of them or some of them to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, 
sort of aggressiveness um, towards other animals. And then clearly you can see that if you're in the dog park or walking even down the street that they don't know the proper procedure to introduce themselves to other dogs. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they either try to get aggressive with the other dogs or they're completely submissive. Um, so, and as well, they uh, they don't seem to know who they are and they're difficult for the average person to teach things um, mm. because they're just sort of uh, unable to focus. So those are some of the things. You must have um, a set of signs that, that mm -hmm. perhaps are more descriptive than mine. No, that's a, those are really good points. I like that you brought that up, I especially, you know, if they don't know how to introduce themselves properly to another one of their kind or even another of another species, uh, human or otherwise, um, then that's yes. a really good sign. And then being hard to teach, I find, you know, that ADD, <laughs> they're, mm -hmm. or, they're, or they're even autistic seeming or, you know, like the lights are on but nobody's home or, uh, you know, that kind of symptom. Um, so those are really good signs, and we see them all the time. Um, so what would you recommend doing? Let's say you have an animal like this. Let's say you've got a horse. Um, I, I can remember um, um, one of my first clients uh, had a half a uh, half a million dollar dressage horse, a Grand Prix level, you know, world class horse, and he put a young um, racehorse off the track. Uh, also, very expensive animal. They, he pastured them together, and they were killing each other. <laughs> and when he had me talk with him, the the colt said that he he just wanted the older horse to pay attention to him, and when he didn't, he would you know just bite and and kick and just be bad. You know, he just wanted that attention, and so I mediated that conversation between them, and actually had to teach the colt. You know, okay, this behavior is not acceptable, and this is the consequence if you don't stop it. And then here's how you're supposed to be. You know, here's what we need from you. And you know what? It worked. He put them back out together, and they were completely fine. But it was like the colt had no clue. He did not know how to behave. You know, he didn't know. So, anyway, I, I just always find it so fascinating what happens. Anyway, okay. Yes, so, you know, um Horses form strong pair bonds. That's why they had the domestication sugar that they ended up in our hands. And so they can form a strong pair bond. In fact, they prefer, they insist on it. That's why horses can't be kept alone. And so, yes, the younger horse wanted to form a pair bond, but like the dog who hadn't been around a lot of dogs, he couldn't introduce himself and the the older horse didn't like the way the younger horse was moving. Mm -hmm. So the young horse had to be taught. Fortunately, there was an animal communicator present. Otherwise, we'd have a mare, perhaps, or have a more gradual um, introduction. But absolutely, they, the animals need to know how to be who they are to get along well with their own species. And I think yeah. it's a great point. Dogs and horses need to know how to get along if it's in the same social fabric, uh, a household full of horses and dogs, and as well, dogs and cats. Um, and as well, cats and horses, you know, barn cats and horses mm -hmm. have the witness. Yeah, so, they do. They do. Uh, and I know horses also form bonds with other animals like goats. Um, you know, those the classic example of the goat or the or the donkey or the mule. Um, chickens. Chick yep. oh, chickens. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah, but uh, you know, I don't think we think about their needs uh, you know, to have a fulfilled life and to have 
bondings and friends and and you know they they need to be fulfilled you know yes horses absolutely require other horses um dogs no human can fulfill the social need of the dog and the dog can be happy to come home with the person at night at the end of the day, the horses are always going to be going to be out with the other horses, and so yeah. we really have to appreciate the social nature of horses. And as far as them bonding with other animals, they have to bond with somebody. And if there's no other horse available, um, mm-hmm. that's when we get them to bond with goats, or perhaps the herd won't allow them in. Um, Again, horses form strong pair bonds, and we may have a herd of seven horses, say, but one of them might be sort of left out, and and that one might move towards its person more than the others, or it might develop a relationship, you know, with a goat or perhaps another wood like a donkey. But we have to make sure in a herd of horses that all of them have a pair-bonded other, and sometimes that's overlooked, and sometimes that horse then won't train up willingly. So it's uh, an example of making, to develop a willing partnership, you, you really have to look hard sometimes to make sure that the horse horse's life is fully enriched and fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Can, can you tell us a story, give us an example of maybe um, uh, ones that you've worked with or have you seen? I know you do a lot of work with racehorses, and I, I think this might be a problem with racehorses. I, I don't know quite how they're handled and how they're raised specifically, but is this a problem with racehorses? Um, well, you know, um, to generalize, what I teach people about horses is in order for them to have enriched lives, they need nearly 24-7 friends, forage, and locomotion. Um so a horse should never be without a bite of forage. Um, mm-hmm. They evolve to eat and walk and move in a social setting, connected with others, two-thirds of the time. And so we uh, base our um, equine behavior on how horses are in natural settings. Mm-hmm. So they're in a herd, they're grazing together, and for a horse to move is to communicate, as you know, and mm-hmm. to communicate is to move. And scientifically now we're using the term kinetic empathy. Mm-hmm. Empathy not being really an emotional word, but just meaning understanding. And so kinetic empathy is an understanding of others' movements and uh, an ability to communicate um, with one another via movements. And horses are a quiet silent species um, mm-hmm. that speak primarily with movements. And so when we take that away from horses by a stabling them, um, it, you know, it, it, it leaves something in them unenriched. So when we do stable horses to the best of our ability, we try to recreate their needs for friends, forage, and locomotion. So if they are in a stall, we like the stall full of straw so that they can constantly walk around and mill through it as they do when bedded on straw. Mm-hmm. If they don't have something to eat, then they lose this sort of uh, moving around that, that is essential for their health. So mm-hmm. in horses, digestive health, hoof health, behavioral health, mental health, however you want to describe that, is dependent on locomotion and movement. So most horses that are having problems uh, aren't getting enough movement, or at least it's one of the issues we have to address. Mm-hmm. And as well, they're not having enough time to communicate with other horses. Yeah. And so they, they need turnout time. And if that's not available, they need to be ridden together with other horses. And 
And so that's essential. And as well, when they're not being ridden and when they're stalled or pastured, they need to be chewing nearly all the time. So we have to appropriately provide them with the forage they need so that they don't develop stereotypies um, Mm -hmm. and other behavior problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that out. That's so critical. So many of our horses live their lives standing in a stall. And then we wonder why they're not real happy campers and they're not healthy and they're, you know, they develop all these um, distressing things like uh, pacing and cribbing and, you know, other sorts of behaviors. So I always thought it was tragic to watch racehorses spend most of their life in a stall and then be expected to go out and run (laughs) to the best of their ability when they're, that's really the only time they get to move uh, is when they're out of their stall. Well, we're we're changing that now. We expect Good. racehorses to be out of the stall three or four hours each afternoon, mm-hmm. um, as well as the two or three hours each morning. So, Good. yes, they became dependent on medication. You can't lock a horse in a stall and race him every two weeks and expect his lungs not to bleed. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to replace um, specifically, you know, say we have a horse that's a bleeder. What what keeps horse lungs healthy is movement, and so. To communicate is to move for a horse. To breathe is to move. To move. So horses need to move to breathe, and they need to breathe to move. Um, you know, when they stride, when they gallop, it's connected. So each stride is a breath. So um, again, to to put them in a stall, that's the last place a horse evolved to live is in a stall alone. Um, uh, our work is cut out for us to make sure they're enriched. And so we have to provide them with abundant locomotion, abundant friends, abundant socialization, and uh, unlimited forage virtually. Um, when we see heavy horses as a veterinary behaviorist, everyone thinks, well, he's getting too much to eat. But the behaviorists know the horse isn't getting enough locomotion. So the proper... Um, the proper procedure for a heavy horse is more movement, more locomotion, not further deprivation of feed, which leaves mm-hmm. the horse into a bad space. And again, this yeah. would be an example of a horse that is unwilling to train up. Yeah. So horses need to move often and frequently and abundantly to stay mentally and physically healthy. Oh, thank you for sharing that. What a critical point. Mm. All right. So let's talk about how to socialize. How do you best socialize foals and horses or dogs or cats or uh, any of that? Let's talk about foals and horses first. How are they best socialized to become a willing partner? Do you have some tips for us? Um, Well, yes. So we look at horses in natural settings and we see the setup there. So ideally a foal would be born on green grass this time of year with a group of other mares and foals. And the mare would be the primary teacher the first few days. And again, a foal needs to be sort of with the open view to to properly develop its vision and everything else. So um, if there's not another herd, the mare can handle it for the first two or three days. And I'm speaking an ideal socialization process. And then, like you see the racehorse people doing in Kentucky, you can see Zenyatta's out with a herd of other brood mares. And so there's four or five brood mares with four or five foals. So out there, the mares and the other foals are teaching each other um, how to become horses. So 
they are learning all the moves. They are learning um, all the negative and positive reinforcement that trainers will subsequently use to teach them. That's how the mares teach the foals. That's why our procedures of training horses work. The mare first teaches them. So ideally, a foal would grow up in that setting, uh, green grass, plenty of space to run around. So it is the mare, the broodmare band and other foals, that, for example, teach a racehorse how to run at speed in close company. You know, it's always amazing how the 20 horses go out. So if they aren't afforded that opportunity, they're never going to be a racehorse. As well, it is the mare and other foals that give the foal the confidence to run through and by other horses. So the confidence to prevail in a horse race is taught by the broodmare band. It's not something people can teach a horse, and certainly a horse can't be forced to win the Kentucky Derby. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what we talk about when we talk about socializing horses. Mm -hmm. As well, they learn all the rules of learning and teaching. And so um, they will learn them very well. So then when we wean them or start handling them, and they can be handled after a couple of weeks without any trouble. It's just the first three or four days we want them left with the mare to bond with the mare to form that strong pair bond thing. And as well for the mare to teach the foal all the right moves. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, it's, it's from a distance we watch. Sometimes we have to intervene if problems arise. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, um, So that's what we speak of when we talk about socializing horses. Again, we like it to continue through the yearling year. Um, we like them to be with other yearlings, with their cohorts, as we say, and run free and open with them and be handled by people. And then by the time they're two, um, they're usually quite willing to train up, provided we continue to provide them with friends, forage, and locomotion. To take them out of their accustomed life and lock them in a stall, um, separate them from their friends, deprive them of locomotion, um, let them run out of hay, that horse is not going to be in a space to learn. So um, it's often a problem I see with people attempting to train horses. So we have to provide them with some socialization, continuity, in order for them to be willing learners. So, yeah, we can use corrals and stables, but we have to make sure they're out frequently and they have turnout time with other horses and that their lives are enriched so that they are happy to train up and willing to become our partner. Yeah. So do you think that if you've got a horse that's not willing to learn, is not in that learning space, um, they're resistant you know, unable to focus, what would you do with that horse? Would you simply give them downtime and put them out to pasture for a while or you have yes, with an approach? I would. I would um, let them go back out with an appropriate herd of cohorts. And say this horse, we were trying to strain, train it out of the stall. Mm-hmm. I would try to um, suggest that they train it out of the pasture. And that let the other horses enrich and fulfill this horse's life. And then, again, we're going to make it a good deal to be taken out of the pasture away from the friends. And the way we're going to do that is not pull them out of the pasture and tie them up and tack them up right away. We're going to give them a 45-minute massage. If you want to connect with horses, you have to rub them. If you watch horses out in a field, you can see they rub each other a couple hours each day. Mm. So, again, you catch the horse, bring it out of its herd, um, and make it a good deal for the horse, and usually that involves a lot of rubbing and massage um, initially. Mm. And um, you don't want to take the horse beyond its comfort zone, and 
the way I like to describe it is the horse cannot be troubled. Troubled horses don't learn. So once they become troubled, usually class is over and they have to be turned back out or, um, you know, put aside until they relax because horses only learn in a relaxed, calm mode. That's a really good point, and I think it's not only horses that can't learn when they're troubled. <laughs> you know, it makes it hard for all of us, doesn't it, if we're stressed? Um, Absolutely. Dogs, yeah. people, children, yeah. Right, right. I'm just thinking, you know, I know for myself when I do too much classroom-focused, hard activity and not enough playtime, not enough creative time, not enough you know, go out and play with friends time, um, then I'm not a very happy camper either. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us to know that our horses and our animals have the same needs. That makes sense. Good. Yes, we're all. We The reason dogs and horses became domesticates is humans, they share with humans not only a social structure, mm-hmm. but a similar learning, you know. So indeed the domestic species are... They're not unlike people, they're like people. There was one group who was trying to say horses are the opposite of people, but socially horses and people are similar, and it is our similarities that we build upon rather than our differences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love it. That makes so much sense. Okay, so so that's a really good point for foals. I love that, and for horses themselves. Um, any other socialization tips uh, for dogs, or is it pretty much the same? Well, I like the dogs. Like I say, um, what I don't like is the pup taken away at six weeks, for example, five to nine weeks, and mm-hmm. and not exposed to other puppies for a period of weeks. Um, yeah. Some people are fearful of disease and this and that. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a critical development period, as you know. Um, whereas this is where the vacuum occurs and the dog loses touch with who, that that it's a dog, that he or she is a dog. And so those are the dogs then that are confused. So if um, that is the case, that the pup is removed from the litter early, I think efforts need to be made for the pup to visit with other pups on a daily or three or four time a week basis. Mm, It has... Um, otherwise, I like them staying with the litter till they're 10 or 12 weeks old. And then again, continuing, even if you get it after 12 weeks, to play with other puppies. So I think those puppy orientation classes, the biggest value is um, the socialization that the puppies receive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I love it. Great. Okay, good. So, um huh. We may have covered a lot of this stuff. Uh, do you have any good stories for us? <laughs> I prepare <laughs> to have a story. You know, the story I'll submit alongside here, and okay. I, I do have a story for you, How okay. Wolf Became Dog. Okay. Um, so uh, 100,000 years ago, there were herds of grazers wandering around northern Asia, and Neanderthals and other humans had begun wandering out of Africa, and they all came together on the Asian plains. And wolves were following the grazers like caribous, and then the people started following the caribou and other grazers and hunting and eating them. And a group of wolves 100,000 years ago took a look at their lives, and um, they said, hey, this is kind of rough following these caribou. Look at these this other species here. They look like we could get along with them. We're going to start following them around and scavenging behind them. 
so 100,000 years ago, a group of wolves, a strain, a line, a clan, started following people instead of um, grazers of the plains. And um, they ate what the humans didn't eat after their hunts. Perhaps they ate humans who'd passed away. Um, it was thought that they took care of a variety of things. And for 80,000 years, they followed humans around without really becoming part of the social fabric. They soon started providing a protective role, and the humans sort of understood that they would know if bigger predators were coming around by the dogs barking and stuff. And so after 80,000 years, um, the humans finally invited this strain of dogs in from the cold. And so rather than us humans going out and capturing wolves from the wild and taming them, um, it appears, and this is backed by science, that it was as much the wolves or dogs idea as it was the humans, and it was actually the dogs, a certain strain, a human-friendly strain, a strain that approved of the way people moved and communicated, a similarly social strain. That was how the process um, happened. So we think it was the wolf who chose the people rather than people going out and choosing wolves to be their willing companions. I like that, so that point. Was... Yeah. Yeah, you know, that goes along with what we what we actually know, I think most of us now too, is that the animals choose us. You know, we may think we choose them, but there has to be them choosing us, and that goes for our horses as well as our cats and everybody else, don't you think? Absolutely. I think it's a great point. Um, If we can't get them to choose us, then we've failed them. And a lot of the behavior problems, rather than looking at the pet and what's at issue with it, we look at our human failings. What have we failed to do? What have we failed to enrich in their life? And then, as you know, once we take that approach, um, the animal will um, become more behaviorally adaptable to to us. Yeah. Mm. Great story. Thanks, Dr. Sid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, So how can people find out more? I uh, I know you have um, a couple of books, one book, two books. Where are you with the books? Yeah. Well, I'm a novelist, so I write novels, and, of course, they have really deep animal themes. Um, Great. uh, Horses They Rode is one of my novels. Um, They're all available on Amazon or through my website, sidgustafson.com. Um, And uh, as well, I have a a first aid for the active dog, so I do have some nonfiction books, and it's a nice little manual for people who want to keep their dogs out of trouble, and if their dog does get in trouble, um, it helps them get through the initial phase so they can get it to a veterinarian if that's necessary. So I have that book as well. Um, Forthcoming, I'll have a book on the language of horses, the language of horsemanship, so... uh, I love Always, that uh, never. Um, it, it's a learning process with these animals, as you know. I learn every yes. day from them. They I'm here with my cat. Yeah, yeah. You, you got your, your cat's helping you. <laughs> I have Mac here and Bud. Um, yeah, their story is is if kittens do have to come away at a very young age from the litter, my preference, by and large, is you get two of them rather than ah. one. Uh, it's hard to socialize cats and bring them to the cat socialization class. That doesn't work. So as far as socializing cats, I like them to come in pairs. Okay. That makes a lot of they, sense. Okay. Um, 
and horses have to come in pairs as well. You're right. Okay. Dogs dogs can come alone as long as they get to see other dogs often. <laughs> right. That's that's really the truth. You know, my I have an only dog and my neighbor has two dogs and what we actually did is we pulled the fence apart between our yards so that our dogs can socialize and play together every day and uh, and that works very well. They they get to, you know, he He's happy to be here with me, and he needs his socialization time, too. So that's important. Good point about the cats. Okay, so let's back up. Um, so your website is sidgustafson.com. And I think we should spell that, just in case people aren't quite sure how to spell it. It's S-I-D-G-U-S-T-A-F-S-O-N.com, right? Yes. Yes, so sidgustafson.com. Um, and then you've got the books, Horses They Rode, First Aid for the Active Dog, and The Language of Horsemanship is coming soon. Yes. Great. Very exciting stuff. Ah, all right. Um, is there anything else that you would like to leave us with today? Any well, um, final pearl the, wisdom? The, sort of the motto I have is dogs, cats, horses are happy to please those people who know how to please them. Yeah. And that's the truth, isn't it? And that goes, it's not just with dogs, cats, and horses. I'm thinking men and women can take some lessons. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yes>. Exactly. <laughs> the, the whole point is to know how to please your partner or your, your companion. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Sid. So we've been speaking with Dr. Sid Gustafson of SidGustafson.com. Thanks so much for your time today, for sharing your heart with us and for your love of animals. You help make our world a better place. Thank you. Well, thank you, Val, for all your work in the same regard. You're welcome. Okay, bye, everybody. Thanks, Dr. Sid. We'll talk to you later. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. For more information or to listen to other podcasts, go to valhart.com forward slash blog. And if you're someone who values a non-invasive, holistic solution to resolving problems with your dogs, cats, and horses, and you want better behaved, healthier, and happier animals, just go to my website at valhart.com to apply for a complimentary happy animal assessment session. And be sure and remember to look for my CDs on iTunes. Learning how to talk with animals is fun and will change your life. So while you're there at my site, get my free Quick Start Animal Talk course and check out the world's first complete animal communication made easy system. May the love of animals bless you, teach you, inspire you, heal you, and reconnect you to the circle of life. Mm